0: What's up, it's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. How you doing?
1: Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN
2: 1000, Chicago's home for sports.
0: Glad to have you in with me on this Wednesday night. Bad boy Rick Mahorn coming up at 8.30. Giving his thoughts on the last dance from the bad boy Detroit Piston Championship teams. Yeah, Rick is going to be with us getting his thoughts about Michael Jordan. I can't wait for that at 8.30 right here on ESPN 1000. One of our favorite guests on the show when we talk baseball is David Schoenfield from ESPN.com. Go to ESPN.com, click Major League Baseball. You can read some great work from David Schoenfield. And he joins me here on ESPN 1000. Dave, Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. I can talk hoops too because I want to get your opinion. ESPN <laughs> just ranked the top 74 players. And I got to say, Gary Payton, underrated. He was like 55th on that list. Come on.
0: Oh, I, I agree you with think? you. That, that, don't, that, never mind what Jordan says in the documentary saying that the glove was nothing. No, the glove was <laughs> a great defender and what and was something was for those Sonics teams. So no, I he is to me a top fifty player. He, I mean, a lot of times he was a heartbeat for those Sonics teams.
2: Hey, when they put you know, in the ninety six finals, when they put Peyton finally on Jordan uh, in game four, Seattle won two in a row and made it a series. Uh, so I I know Jordan ripped uh, the glove in that uh, show, but uh, go look at the numbers, Michael
0: Jordan. The glove glove was great, wasn't he? He was great. It's no question about that. Uh, David, you know I could hear his I could hear the uh, the click. I think we've lost him. Have we lost him? Tyler, I believe we have. Let's, let's see if we can reconnect with uh, with David Schoenfield. He wrote a couple of really great pieces that we're going to talk about. If you go to ESPN.com, David wrote about, um, one, eight amazing Major League Baseball seasons that could only happen in the 1980s. You know, baseball has always been about numbers, and it's about records. I mean, it's, it's one thing to look at basketball and how many championships and counting rings and all that. You take a look at, at some other sports or the National Hockey League or other sports, but baseball has always been about uh, numbers and it's about records. And by the way, as we are watching this 30 for 30, soon enough, we're going to be watching the Maguire Sosa race. And of course, neither one of these two are destined for the Hall of Fame. Um, looks like anytime soon, just based on the numbers, but the McGuire Sosa chase in the way that's going to be brought uh, out there by uh, ESPN should be very interesting. Uh, that's going to be an interesting watch for sure. Uh, that's one of the Sunday documentaries that we're going to be keeping our eyes on. But he had uh, some thoughts about uh, the 80s and about the 90s when it comes to uh, great numbers. I'll give you an example on the 80s side. So will we ever see again Ricky Henderson in 1982 with the A's? He stole 130 bases. Is there a possibility that we're going to see someone steal that many bases? Baseball has changed so much. I remember working with Chris Black, and and, uh, Chris mentioned something I thought was a salient point. He says, you know, the problem is with baseball, you know, with the home run and strikeout, there isn't enough action on the base paths, as he grew up watching, and I grew up watching too. As we bring back David Schoenfield, you had two, a couple of great pieces as of late. I want to talk to you about Dave, and yep. uh, but first and foremost, what I got to ask you this: What is your favorite era of baseball as a fan?
2: <laughs> I think we've probably talked about this, but obviously, I did the piece uh, last week on the 1980s, and I think I gather what you're talking about is yeah, there was a lot going on in the 80s that we don't see now especially like you were saying the stolen bases the speed on the bases um, and most importantly I think the variety of styles in the game you could try to win with home runs you could try to win with steals you know pitching and defense we're now 2020 it's all home runs or strikeouts right very one-dimensional game the athletes are great Right now, I think they're better than ever, but I love the overall style of play in the in the 80s.
0: Yes, I would agree with you as well with that. And but and here's why. Baseball should never look the same. Yeah. Like like, like the first t- the team I recall watching, the well, the first World Series I followed as a kid from beginning to end was the 82 World Series, watching the Cardinals and the Milwaukee yep. Brewers. And you knew there was a different style. Brewers were about home runs or nothing you know home runs or strikeouts because of the harvey wall bangers other side is that everybody in the lineup would steal for the for the cardinals <laughs> from, yep. from from the top of the lineup to the the pitcher spot. Why Herzog would hit that team running, and so it, you had a dichotomy of styles. Baseball can't, can't look the same, David. It can't be, well, all these teams are about strikeouts and, and, and not having pitchers go no more than six innings, strikeouts or home runs, because then baseball looks ordinary. I guess that's the point.
2: Yeah, no, and that's that's exactly where we're at, which I think it's, it's unfortunate. You know, look, just a few years ago, a 2014 World Series, was the Royals and the Giants, two teams that did not rely at all on the home run. And, um, and then the Royals won it the next year, although they had added a little more power that year. Um, five years later, you couldn't win with that style of team. They simply just would not hit a home run. So, yes, home. we get it. We know what the numbers and all the analytics say. Home runs are good, but it, it comes to me to the detriment of, of a more exciting game. Don't get me wrong, home runs are great, but sure. when that's all there is, they're not so great.
0: So this is, let me get to the 80s one, because eight amazing Major League Baseball seasons that could only happen in the 80s. So we talk about records that never be broken, right? So Ricky Henderson with his 130 <laughs> stolen bases in 82. I don't think we'll ever see that again. Am I right?
2: No, look, unless we, the style of the game you know, does a 180, but the, the amazing thing about that is... The way he had to have beat up his body to steal 130, plus he got caught stealing 42 times. That's one reason they don't run any as much anymore, because the numbers say you have to succeed at such a high rate to really make it viable. You know, that's one reason they don't run, plus the next guy might, might hit a home run. But yeah, but we lived through Ricky. Has there been a more exciting baseball player? you know, in our lifetime than Ricky Henderson? I I don't think there has been. He got on first base, and it was so exciting. Is he going to go? The Mm -hmm. answer usually was yes. You know, but that was just its own little mini drama every game. Anytime Ricky Henderson got on first base, and he didn't have to hit 50 home runs a year to be exciting, he just had to get on first base.
0: How about a 19-year-old phenomenon, Dwight Gooden, that you wrote about? <laughs> so I saw his first—I I saw in person his first uh, outing against the Cubs, where the Cubs pinned his ear back. I go, "This is terrible. This kid, like a, he's too young to be out there." And then, of course, he becomes an all-time great. Right, 218 yeah. innings pitched, 276 strikeouts, with a 260 ERA in 84 with the Mets I mean here's the numbers are eye-popping but we're talking about someone starting at 19
2: 19 (laughs) there you go I mean and we see this now in the NBA where these kids you know come up you know when they're 19 or 20 and they can be stars right off the bat but back then in 1984 you just didn't see that happening you know uh, obviously in football and basketball they were still in college at that age it only happened in baseball But also, remember, we didn't have all the hype. Uh, We didn't know as much about minor leaguers, you know, unless you were reading Baseball America. So when Dwight Gooden started doing this at 19, it was the story of the season. He ended up finishing second in the Cy Young race that year. But a teenager who was the most dominant pitcher um, of the season at the time, his strikeouts per nine set a single-season record, Uh, We'll never see that again. Not in baseball. A nineteen-year-old today, they're going to cap his innings at a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yeah, what a what a story that was back in nineteen eighty-four.
0: See that, David? Basketball gets that. Hockey sometimes gets that. Baseball needs that. We haven't seen that since a teenager doing that. No, baseball. Yeah, needs that.
2: certainly not as a pitcher. We've had, you know Juan Soto a couple years ago came up at nineteen and was great. You know, and we're seeing. Some amazing young talent, in Ronald Acuna, uh, but not the pitching side. They're just they're too protect. They have to be protective because Dwight Gooden. Also, there were other issues there, but he had two great years and was never quite the same. Um, but they're just protective of these kids, so they bring them along so slowly in the minors. But back then, I mean, Dwight Gooden class A ball to the majors, and he was one of the best pitchers we've seen.
0: David Schoenfield from ESPN.com joining me, Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Let's talk about Rhino Ryan Sandberg from the '84 Cubs. So, 314 average, 36 doubles, 19 triples, 19 home runs, 32 stolen bases. So, when uh, when Jim Fry passed away just recently, I put Barry Rosner on who covered the Cubs for the Daily Herald uh, for for years. And you remember Sandberg came from Philadelphia. And so, you know, this is the turf, and Dallas Green during that time wanted Sandberg and Boa and Moreland and, and, and Gary Matthews to just pound the ball into the ground and run it out to try to get a base hit, right? And, and 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 Jim Fry said, what the hell is this kid doing? Why does he keep just chopping it into the ground? And he went, and Sandberg did it again after going 0 for 20 one day, and he says, <laughs> he, goes, he goes, Rhino, wouldn't you like to be able to hit the ball in the air and just see what happens? <laughs> and Rhino says, well, well, tell me what you want me to do. So Fry uh, had, you know, went into the cage with Sandberg. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to hit the ball down the left field line, but I want you to hit it like 30 feet foul. As much as possible, just keep swinging, but I want you to keep hitting it foul down the left field line. He was trying to straighten his swing out so he can right, be able to right. get used to it, right? And so obviously the, the, the story goes on and he becomes a Hall of Famer, but it just, it's kind of funny. Because like, when Samurai got here, he was just doing what the Phillies organization wanted him to do chop it in the ground on that turf and run. And he became a great player, of course, with the Cubs.
2: No, it, it, that's a really good point and you know I think in in some fa- even though we were just sort of criticizing modern baseball we don't necessarily mean to do that no. cuz players today they are Uh, taught to swing harder, to swing better. You know, back in the 80s, there were a lot of players that would just chop at the ball, and they'd hit 260 with no power. You know, that kind of player. He couldn't survive in today's game. They just wouldn't be valuable enough. But the good players, the talented players like Ryan Sandberg would figure things out. Oh, yeah, I hit the ball in the air. I hit line drive. I'm going (laughs) to hit for more power. Um, And, uh, yeah, he became one of the all-time greats
0: dave uh one last one from the 80s before i go to the other column is <laughs> i just had a belly laugh looking at the the tom hurt tommy herc <laughs> numbers from 85 eight home runs 110 rbis <laughs> yeah <laughs>
2: well, you what were is that? The, yeah you were just talking about the 82 cardinals <laughs> this was the 85 cardinals and uh i think that was the season i got the most feedback on you know people that weren't old enough to to remember 85. Couldn't fathom a season like that happening. But Tommy Hur hit third. He had Vince Coleman hitting leadoff, who stole, I think, 100 bases that year. Mm-hmm. He had William McGee usually hitting second. William McGee won the MVP that year, hit 350. But neither one of those two hit, a ho- hit many home runs. So they were on base. All Tommy Hur had to do was hit a single or a double, and they'd, he'd drive them in. That's how you get 100 a, a RBIs with only eight home runs.
0: So um in the 90s you, it's there's uh, so many great numbers we could be here all night but we're, we won't but I just want to just <laughs> I just want to point out just some of these record breakers where there was so much offensive talent so it, in one section of your column you're talking about you picked the MVP right the 93 Mariners with Ken Griffey Jr John Olerud, who was great with the 93 Blue Jays. Uh, Kenny Lofton, who was a great stolen base threat, 70, uh, 70 stolen bases in 93 with a slash line at 325, 408, and 408. Juan Gonzalez of the Rangers, Frank Thomas of the White Sox, and Roberto Alomar of the Blue Jays. I mean, just it, it's crazy some of these numbers it, where, where they are eye-popping stats on pitching and hitting all throughout the 90s that are just amazing.
2: Yeah, it really was. I think I called it the the superstar decade, and we know there was a lot of artificial stuff going on, you know, uh, in that decade, and that helped pump up the numbers. But there also, I think there was a lively ball. You know, things repeat; history repeats itself, right? Starting in '93, the ball suddenly was juiced as well. And that allowed the hitters, the really good hitters, to just start putting up these absolutely ridiculous numbers. And I know some people look back on the 90s and they don't like it because we know what happened, you know, with the steroids. But I look at these numbers and it's just—it's unbelievable. We think a guy now who hits 40 home runs, well, back then they hit 40 home runs, but they also hit 340. You know, look what the Frank Thomas year after year hitting 320, 330, 340, hit 350, I think, once or twice, um, with power and walks, you know. So uh, a crazy decade. I kind of look back on it with fond memories despite all the uh, the PED stuff that happened.
0: What is your, just real quick, just your gut feeling? Gary Sheffield, Hall of Famer, yes or no?
2: Um, i put him in. I mean, I you know, I, for, to me, I don't... The PED issue, you know, he's there's been some allegations there. Um, my general take on PEDs is it, it happened. We don't know who did what. And Sheffield, one of the best hitters uh, of his generation, certainly the guy with the quickest bat speed. I'd, I'd vote for him.
0: So, throughout all this, with this pandemic and trying to figure out what the players and owners are going to do with uh, baseball in 2020, uh, it looks like, of nothing else, David, it looks like uh, the players and owners have signed off on a universal DH the way God wanted it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so,
0: so, is that? I think that's possible, right? Looks like that's going to happen.
2: Yeah, I think if there's one thing we're probably going to take from this is uh, the the time of pitchers hitting is probably over, not just this year, but forever. And it's time, right? I mean, what did pitchers hit last year? One hundred eight, one well, hundred yeah. ten. What's What's interesting about that? So, um, I know those old school National League fans; they'll never give up their anti DH, but uh, I'm for it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, well, yeah. it's my bias as an American League fan. I'm a White Sox fan, so I just, I've never had use for a pitcher, unless that guy was good. Like, unless that pitcher was somewhere where, you know, LaRusso would put him up in the 8th spot and he'd hit over 200, alright, great, but it's just, to me, it's just been a waste. It, there was enough highlights of, of hitting pitchers on This Week in Baseball when I was a kid, so I don't I don't need it now.
2: <laughs> so. No, and I get it. People bring up, oh, uh, Madison Bumgarner, okay, he hit the four home runs or whatever one year, but that 99.9% of the other pitchers can't hit. So, and they don't even care. Eh? You know, you go in and talk to pitchers about how much do they work on their hitting, and the answer is, we don't know. I'm paid to pitch, you know. So uh, it's not even a skill they work to develop. Teams don't work to develop because there's DHs in the minor leagues. So why does suddenly they spend four years in the minors and there's, they come up to the majors and they're told you have to hit? It's, it's ridiculous.
0: What's your gut feeling, David? You've been reading like everyone else is about what's going on with the players and owners. Do we have a season?
2: I think so. I know there's some yeah, obviously some uh, wheeling and dealing to uh, figure out how to distribute the money, but um, the owners want, want baseball. The, the players want baseball, and I think all the fans, we want baseball, so I think they'll find a way to make it work.
0: All right, well, uh, I know it's a little early for you out there. Uh, have you been watching some KBO? Have you kept it kept your eyes on it?
2: <laughs> um, no. the first couple days I did. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's it, it's not necessarily my cup of tea., yeah, it comes on here at one in the morning or something, <laughs> you know. but uh, I'll catch some of the highlights uh, the following morning, but it, hey, at least it's 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 baseball. It's good baseball. You know, it's probably like double A level. Um, so, hey, it's a real live sporting event. So, even a little bit of that uh, at least whets the appetite somewhat.
0: I've seen some of it. I, I not not a ton, but enough to, enough to know that I'm scouting out some umpires. I want on the major league level. They're, they're entertaining <laughs> back it's there, aren't they? It's not
2: as fun, you know. During a normal Korean League game, you know, when you have the fans, you know, they treat baseball kind of like uh, in Latin America, where there's the singing and the chants and all that. That makes it so exciting. But without fans, you don't have that atmosphere. And that's, you know, when MLB starts up, that's going to be the inter- how players kind of adjust to that, you know, playing in empty stadiums. Um, you know, yeah, you got to really <laughs> rev yourself up with, with no, no fans in attendance. So I'll be curious to see how players adapt to that once we get going.
0: David, I just want people to know about your columns because you're putting in some great work uh, always, <laughs> especially with the great nostalgia of the 80s and 90s and really del- delving in some numbers that uh, some did not know. So I'm glad you came on, but I want people to know about it. Some great stuff.
2: Well, I appreciate the uh, publicity. It's, it's fun to fun to talk about our, our youth, right? <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: No question about that. That's all I have.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, right <laughs> at this point in our lives, uh, uh, those younger days look of fond in retrospect for sure.
0: David, thank you so much for coming on the show as always.
2: All right. Thanks for the invite.
0: It is uh, David Schoenfield who covers Major League Baseball for ESPN.com. Follow him on Twitter at DShoenfield. Coming up next, uh, and by the way, at 830 we'll hear from bad boy Rick Mahorn, his thoughts about Michael Jordan the last dance. He's one of those bad boy Pistons teams. I look forward to his perspective, uh, as skewed as it could be, (laughs) on on the uh, Chicago Bulls. Coming up next, oh, there's a sport. Man, we want baseball back. But is football returning, especially with the college variety? We talk about it next
1: on UTH.
3: This
1: is Under the Hood. Under the Hood podcasts are available now on the all new ESPN Chicago app. Available on your device now.
3: This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.
1: We talked about the Packers
0: on Monday. Talked about the Vikings on Tuesday. Tonight we talk about the Detroit Lions as we review the NFC North. Michael Rostin will be with us coming up at 9 o'clock to talk about the Lions. as We take an overview of the uh, NFC North right here on ESPN 1000. And uh, Rick Mahorn will be with us coming up at 8.30. His thoughts about the Last Dance documentary. Has he watched it? We're going to find out his thoughts. Uh, his part of Tales from the Hood. Uh, Laura Rutledge from the SEC network and was on Get Up this morning. Now, uh, Tyler, we've worked together for about four or five months, six months. Yep. And You know how much I, you know, you and I are kindred spirits when it comes to college athletics. I love college football. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've said many times I prefer college over the NFL, like nine times out of ten. But <laughs> man, like I'm getting itchy because I don't know like are these other sports in the fall when college football or the NFL is going to be uh, on time. So Laura was talking on Get Up, uh about college football starting in the spring.
3: The spring model for college football only exists if you run out of time, at least before that point. And there are a lot of parts of the country that probably won't run out of time and probably will be able to have some sort of college football season that is within the fall. And who knows exactly what that looks like. But when it comes to areas like the west part of the country and the Pac-12 specifically here, I would not be surprised if we do see them move toward a spring model. And look, the point with all that is not that it's ideal. It's obviously not ideal. But the fact of the matter is they have to find a way to get this college football season within the 2020-21 school year. And so that would be a way to do it. We're talking about potentially a shortened season that gets some players back on campus around January, February and would maybe go through May. And it would be completely unprecedented and unusual, but it may be the best option to at least get football in for the Pac-12 in some way, shape or form.
0: Thoughts there from Laura Rutledge from Get Up. Interesting to see the college football possibly with a spring model. We'll see what happens. Bad boy Rick Mahorn from the Detroit Pistons a broadcast team joins me next on UTH.
1: What do you got there? This is your car. My car? I said a 10-second car, not a 10-minute car. Pop the hood. Pop the hood? Pop the hood. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app.
4: Here
0: we go. A special Tales from the Hood with me, Jonathan Hood, right here on ESPN 1000 and the brand new ESPN Chicago. app. so glad you're with us. We've been watching Last Dance on ESPN on Sundays and there has been a section of A lot of the Detroit Pistons, that battle that the Pistons and the Bulls had. Please be joined by Series XM NBA Radio's Rick Mahorn, NBA champion, also the color analyst for the Detroit Pistons on the radio side. He is with me here on ESPN 1000.
5: Rick, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, any any time for you, hoodie. You my man. You're the only thing I like in Chicago. (laughs) <laughs> yes,
0: I, yes, I know that. Yes, I know that. So, so, so t- during this during this time uh, with you being off, you know, this Last Dance has been pretty hot on ESPN. It, have you been watching the Last Dance?
5: No, I've been watching my favorite shows: Perry Mason, Mad Lock. No, not Mad Lock, but a couple of I Love Lucy's, uh, The Honeymooners. I'm catching up on MeTV, T V. The bounce, bravo! I'm I'm having a great time, you know. But I I was not going to kill my brain cells with ten hours of the last dance. I just—that's just me. It happened in my life. Whatever, whatever happened, it did, and I don't want to relive it because some of it, most of it, to me, uh, uh, is—you know—they sensationalize it a little bit more. They emphasize it a little bit more. And then make us look like we were the bad guys. Well, you you are a bad boy, Rick. I mean, hey, I'm a bad boy, and the one thing about it, you got to know me over all the times that we've been on air together. But you got to know me that you, everybody has a persona on the court. This is yes. what we do for a living. But also, when we're living, we don't have to be living like we're on the court. So my thing is, you know, a lot of times people think that we were all Bullies and just bad for basketball. But you know, when you look at it, only thing we did was emulate the teams before us. You know, we had to learn from the Boston Celtics and also the Lakers how to, how to prepare to beat a champion or to be, you know, to be in a championship and not just be there to enjoy it. So you learn the tricks of the trade from the pre- pre- previous predecessors, how to be tough. How to be, you know, how to be motivated, but also keeping yourself centralized on the goal of winning a championship.
0: Well, Rick, before trying to get through, you know, playing Jordan, playing the Bulls, who are some of those those tough players, those tough teams that would take uh, maybe liberties with your body when you're out there on the floor?
5: Well, the thing is, you know, you got to figure it out. Back then, in our central division, before they made it into another division, we had teams like the Atlanta Hawks. The Milwaukee Bucks that had a good team with Sidney Moncrief and also uh, Junior Bridgman and, and uh, Paul Pressey, the original to me, the original point forward. Then you had teams like the Atlanta Hawks with Dominic Wilkins and uh, Kevin Willis and, and Doc Rivers and Whitman. And then you go play in the Indiana Pacers. You had uh, uh, you had guys like Reggie Reggie Miller. You had all these Hall of Famers, and they were playing well. And then here, here's the, the the one that everybody doesn't really know about. It was the damn Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavaliers was one of the best teams in the Central Division until we made a trade in the middle of the season to acquire Mark Aguirre. But we were down five games to them, and they had the best record. And they were playing. They had uh, Craig Elo. They had um, uh, Mark Price. They had Brad Doherty. Hot Rod Williams, Larry Nance, Ron Harper, they had a hella team. And and, and you got to figure we had to catch them in order to get the home court advantage to eventually win a championship. So when, when I look at, you know, they say, oh, you had to go through the Pistons. But when you look at it, you had the Philadelphia 76ers. You had the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference and, and the New York Knicks. So it wasn't a night off. It was always a night on every time you had to go play.
0: Bad boy, Rick Mahorn with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. So um, in this documentary, Rick, and I'll just tell you some of those those highlights of it. So many of uh, the episodes talking about the Pistons and how there was Jordan rules where you want to make sure that Jordan didn't take flight, make him earn it on the line. When was the first time that you heard uh, the Brendans, uh, Sir Malone, D- Chuck Daly, talk about that as far as implementing that against the Bulls?
5: Well, what's, what's funny is that people think it was just primarily Jordan. But when you're preparing for an opposing team, you're trying to take out their, their number one weapons and let them beat you with auxiliary weapons. You know, when you're looking at the Boston Celtics, do we have the Larry Bird rules? Of course. Did we have the Dr. J rules? Of course. Did we have the Dominique Wilkins rule? Of course. That's just basketball. When you're playing all the other 28, 29 teams in the league, you're centering in on a team's strengths. And no, don't get me wrong, Jordan was a part of, you know, was it a rule? No, it was just the same way what do we prepare for a Bird, a Magic. Uh, Kareem at Bill Jabbar, uh, uh, Sidney Moncrief, uh, Terry Cummins. These are, you know, you try to take out the other team's primary choices on the defensive end. That's how you try to beat them. You make them beat you with something less effective, and that's how you get through a game, a series, or whatever it is to win a championship. So when I hear the Jordan rules, yeah, yeah, you know, you hear the Jordan Was it something that we said? Yeah, just because media would eat it up. Okay, let's let's just do the Jordan rules.
0: <laughs> is there a particular bull that you had an issue with during that heyday? Because there was a number of big guys that could not necessarily like a Lambir. You had Sally. There was Buddha Edwards. You all that muscle that was on the inside. What were what some of the th- memories of taking on some of these bulls that you might have had a problem
5: with? I didn't have a problem with any of the bulls. This is the fact that I was coming there, being who I was. It wasn't the fact that you know when I got a team thinking about the physicality and the intimidation that we're going to try to um, enforce on your team. All of a sudden, we, we're winning because we ain't even thinking about that. We're thinking about beating you, knowing that you're thinking about getting hit coming across the line. When you, when you, when your, your second thought instead of your primary thought being I got got to cut through the lane, your, your your first thought is I'm gonna get bumped when I cut through the lane. Those are the things you have to fight. Uh, frustrate with yourself if you if you think that you get my thing was if I had to go against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar first time I ever went against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar all I've dreamt about was that right hand hook but then when I realized it why am I worried about what his right hand hook looks like let me see if he can hit you beat me going with the left hand so you get you get the shock and awe of oh this is what we have to expect even though it's there you know it's going to happen you still have to execute. So it wasn't. Did I have any uh, bullseyes on any of the bulls' backs? No. Our, our main target was to keep Jordan, you know, at bay and make sure that he's not the one that's going to beat us and let somebody like Horace Grant or Scottie Pippen, you know, let them beat us. And, and if they beat if they beat us, then you know they're the better team.
0: You know, Rick, here's one one thing I don't understand, is your your ex-teammate Isaiah Thomas piston-splaining his way through all of these talk shows, sports radio and others, and sports TV apologizing for his role with the Pistons. And, and here's what I think. Like, you're not going to get Dick Butkus or Chuck Cecil or Doug Plank or LT or Mark Yassineau, all those guys in the past. Mike that would, Singletary. Mike Singletary, all those All those dudes that that played hard, right? That was just mm-hmm. the way the game was, and I, I just I think it's weird that Isaiah now feels like obligated to apologize or, or try to explain what the Pistons were all about. When I, if, if I'm Isaiah, I was part of two championship teams. I was part of a successful era of basketball. Why does he have? He doesn't have to ex- explain anything
5: about your era he of basketball. Go, the thing is, you know, a lot of times when you change, you know, professions, and you know Isaiah's doing well with his champagne. With with that being said, and being a part of what the NBA is all about, and being on television, of course, and I can't speak for him, but I know this is just you know from what I gather from. I mean, it's 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 okay to apologize once, maybe twice, but it's it's a it's a way that you don't have to apologize because you know you did your job. He's a Hall of Famer. Are well respected in Chicago because that's where he's born and raised, and he, he represented the Chicago, the Chicago, you know, basketball players that's come out of there, like a Derrick Rose and guys like Terry Cummins and guys that have grew up there. You know, you represent your city and your set. But the thing is, when you apologize, don't apologize for nothing. The thing is, you, the people try to villainize him. You know, nobody villainized the, when Karl Malone bust him in the head. And gave him 86 stitches or someone, you know, a, a guy of his size that was able to play basketball amongst Giants, you know, and to become a Hall of Famer, not only a Hall of Famer, but an All NBA player, but didn't make the All NBA team after you sacrificed to make his teammates better. So when, when I see, when I talk to him, it's not that he's apologizing, it's more of like trying to explain to people that are focusing in on him walking off the court. But here's the thing. You know, you're picking guys for the dream team, and that's what, you know, kind of upsets me uh, uh, to a degree because he should have been on that first dream team. But, you know, powers that be didn't want him to be there. And and that's the fact, you know, it's just part of what life is. Some people will get picked, and some people they'll look over – their past sins, <laughs> you can go, okay, well, he can be on the team, you know, he ain't do nothing, or, you know, he can be on the team. But when you find a guy like Isaiah, who I think, that, you know, he's not necessarily trying to, you know, apologize, but he's trying to explain from his way. And you know me, Hoodie, I wouldn't give a damn if anybody said, whatever they think about me, I don't give a damn. They ain't in my house. They ain't writing my check.
0: <laughs> I was going to give you the forum to explain yourself and your physical play but you don't you don't care.
5: No, no, you can give me, I, look look <laughs> where I learned to play basketball, hoodie, yes. I'm from the old school. I'm from I went to a historically black college. I went to the same you know, same uh uh kind of, you know, humble beginnings where we had to catch a eight-hour bus ride to go play a game, or we had to stay in a dormitory. It, it was called a, a fight for survival. And, and, a, and, a, and just in this is Division Two. not talking when you get to the NBA. And, they, and every time I got on the court, it was a fight for survival. I wanted to keep my job. In order to keep my job, and I know everybody out there that's listening in the airwaves, if you want something, you got to continue to fight for it. Nobody's going to give you a crap in life. The thing is, you got to go out there be the best person you can be, but you also got to be the best person to continue to be better. And that's what I did. That was my craft. If physicality was my, if, well, if physicality was part of what I needed to do to get an advantage, I call that a very smart basketball player. I couldn't jump high, I couldn't run fast, but I was damn sure in my mind. Well, I was well, going to outthink you and make sure that you played my game and not your style.
0: Pistons color radio analyst Rick Mahorn with Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Uh, just like your teammates, John Sally and Buda Edwards and Rodman, did uh, did uh, Krauss ever offer you a contract to come be part of the Bulls?
5: Yes, he did. You know, it was the fact that I was uh, in the middle of um, going to uh Negotiating, I think I was going in. Yeah, I was going to New Jersey, and the fact that you know, I got a call from Chicago, and I got a call from uh, I got a call from Jerry Cross. And the thing is, he called, we talked, and he said, you know, we'd like for you to come up here. I think this is the '98 campaign, um, and I said, you know what, I bleed red, white, and blue. I'm a piston for life, but I may be in different places, but I'm still a piston for life. And Chicago just wasn't my scene. I could have went there and got a ring like a, a Buddha or a Robert Parrish, you know, sit the bench and ride the train. But I didn't really want to do that because I felt myself as a player, you know, people say to you look and say, oh, Rick, you should have went. No, I shouldn't have went. This is what my destiny was to be here in New Jersey to try to teach, you know, these players how to be professionals. And and Chuck Daly was there. But, you know, I wanted to go where I was comfortable, and I felt comfortable going back to New Jersey.
0: Uh, i got to ask you about the Big Three. Have you heard if it's going to be viable because you've been coaching in that league for a few years now? Uh, Will that be running this summer?
5: Well, right now, you know, we're waiting for the powers that be, what's going on with this pandemic and making sure that Americans are safe or, you know, that people are safe. go to go see a game uh, like the three-on-three, because right now we still don't have professional sports going on right now. Everything is at a pause. The big three is part of that, and the NBA is a part of that, and also baseball, hockey. We don't know what's going to happen with football, how how long this pandemic is going to go. But I'm praying that everybody does their social distancing and making sure that we can flatten the curve, And and you know you want to see people healthy. You want to see fans back at the game, but you want to make sure that they're safe and they can't contact this you know this particular disease. Well, that's true. Uh, I just know that
0: you've seen the growth, Rick, because you're at these games of the Big Three. Mm -hmm. A lot of these remember, I'm a
5: champion. Um, yes. I was first champion, undefeated, baby. Yes, I understand that. Yes, I understand. I And my I'm team was bad boys. They were bad boys. Trilogy, Wad, Kenyon Martin, Al Harrington, Rashad McCann, James White. Yeah, I had boy, we was sitting there being rough. But go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: yes, I, I was watching the games. Yes, I'm always concerned mm. when you got that mic going on because, like, man, I can't believe they got a live mic on you. Who knows what you're going to say? <laughs> and I was, and you
5: know, I was going to say it. But you know, what, <laughs> I, I really, I, I really appreciate the big three. Ice Cube has done a great job of letting former players that you know still got a little game left in their tank, and that's the thing. And also his inclusivity of having you know, two women uh, in in our league as well. Nancy Lieberman went in there last year and Lisa Leslie this year. So it gives people like Joe Johnson a chance to go into a camp where he was up here in Detroit, but the numbers game caught, you know, got him, but it was just, it's nice to get that kind of respect again. If you're a former player and you get invited back to back into the NBA,
0: by the way, I've been saying this a lot, even before the postponement, I think, as the the NBA has been going on and, and it's been fine, but I think it's important to have balance in the league on the Eastern and Western conferences. It's important, I think, for the lifeblood for the of the league for for markets like DC and New York and Detroit and Chicago to be in the top eight in the in the East. Rick, it, it's just it's it's one of these things where when you have these big markets. I know that the NBA has changed, where you can, you know, there are no like small or big markets. You can go to New Orleans or Oklahoma City, Sacramento, and make a good dollar. But I think it's important for, from a television standpoint, to have these markets viable again. Detroit and Chicago, in particular, they have got to get back into the playoff picture on a perennial basis.
5: Yeah, you know, it's it's always healthy, and it's healthy for the league, it's healthy for teams, but it's also healthy for the fans because you figure you're playing the teams like. Uh, the the Lakers, and all of a sudden they come into your town, that's a hot ticket, you know, and then you go to another city, and then you get the Atlanta Hawks, that's not a hot ticket. It's the fact that marketing for the NBA is becoming, you know, getting better, but it's all about the competition. It's all about guys, you you know, not necessarily looking to get paid, but looking to try to win. I think the whole format and the mentality to me is that uh, you know, these guys are going to get paid. Now, I ain't mad at them getting their money because they play, you know, they play the game. But my thing is I would love for them to get more by, you know, creating winners, making sure like teams like uh, the, the Pelicans all of a sudden this year were, were being outstanding. But here's a team that nobody even thought would even be in the playoffs. And that's if it is a playoffs, that's Oklahoma City. You got to figure they in not lost Russell Westbrook, they Los lost Kevin Durant, and, and you go like, man, what else can they do? But then all of a sudden, they're in the thick of things of making the playoffs. That's fun. That's excitement, especially for fans and, like you say, for the cities that you know that are having these play, having these teams, and always building that force of fanship all the way through.
0: Uh, So, uh, I'm just telling you, Rick, I mean, Sunday night, I mean, it's the last two episodes, just, I think you should just watch Michael, because he's just telling truths, he's telling that saying that Gary Payton wasn't that serious for him defensively, that he wasn't much, and, you know, he's he's talking about Scotty, how he should have been a, a better leader when he was playing baseball. It's some it's some good stuff in there, Rick. You gotta gotta turn it on. Why why,
5: why do I want to watch somebody's you know somebody's documentary? We still got the thirty for thirty bad boys on ESPN. That's a documentary. (laughs) And all of a sudden, you telling me to watch the leadership? I mean, we see that in day to day life, buddy. We see people. (laughs) You need to take more of a leadership role. Once I left, you should have took it. My thing is, if I look at any Chicago Bull that left, let's let's look at it now. Right. Any Chicago Bull that left there that originally was with the Chicago Bulls, did they win a championship?
0: Uh, no. no uh, Pippen did not. And, uh, Horace did not. No.
5: Yeah, but my thing is, as a group, they had one of you know the people that – the pieces that they had for that team were so valuable into the system. You know, everybody looks at, okay, well, the system was good because you had these players that were very – talented in these positions, but when they leave the they leave the nest, hoodie, next thing you know you've got to figure that Scotty the Scotty Piffin all of a sudden changed to Houston Rockets? No. It was like all of a sudden it was like you finally find a team, uh, that person's weakness outside of what they were in, that triangle offense, you know. Those things when you look at it, was Scotty Piffin a three point shooter? No. But was it called upon him to shoot threes? Yeah it was. Those are the things that people don't understand about basketball. You can take somebody away from – I always bring an adage my mother always would tell me. You can lead a horse to water. But it doesn't mean they're going to drink. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Thank you, uh, Alice Mahorn.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, there it is. It's, it's Rick, Rick is not going to be watching it because he's got his thirty for thirty for the bad boys, so he doesn't need to. No, watch no, this. no. I got, I got to catch up on to my
5: old Law and Order on We TV, man. Come on. Let's <laughs> see, let's see. Doo, 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 doo. <laughs> <laughs> he's not going to watch. Well, there it is.
0: He's I ain't watching, watching
2: that crap. <laughs>
0: well, as always, I, I appreciate it. I just
5: want to get your perspective. We know that you're not going to be watching, but because you lived it, so I, I understand. You, you, my man, hoodie. I mean, I'd do anything for <laughs> to you. I told you the only thing I like in Chicago. Oh, also, also, Derrick Rose. So and I Derrick can't Rose can't knock out D. Oh man, I love D. Rose. I am so glad we had a Derrick Rose. That shows that you know watching him him getting better at, at what he does, just watching him, his maturity, his approach, I was just, you know, I was just, I, he's an old school, an old school spirit where he wants to get better and always working on his craft. I love some Derrick Rose.
0: Yeah, there's no question. Uh, and he's beloved here still uh, because he's from here from the city. So, Rick, I'm glad you spent some time and uh, hope to get a chance to talk to you. Hopefully we'll have a res- resumption of the season at some point.
5: Well, I hope so too. But hoodie, as long as I got you on the airways, man, I'm good.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Uh, Rick Mahorn, uh, the bad boy, the NBA champion, color analyst for the Detroit Pistons, on the radio side with me, Jonathan Hood. Under the Hood on ESPN 1000.
1: This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the gram at I-G-J-Hood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports, ESPN 1000.
0: Wow. So, Tyler, how unvarnished, how real is... Rick Mahorn, the uh, bad boy Piston, now Piston's broadcaster. That was amazing.
4: You know, the thing that I love about all the bad boys really speaking out during these times, whether it's him, Lambeer, John Sally, Isaiah Thomas, is especially for my generation, we didn't live through that hatred. So for us, it's kind of like a comedy show, watching everything that comes back out of this. And I find it super intriguing because... You know how Jason Hare said on Waddle and Sylvie how, yeah, there's not going to be an 11th episode of this. That's like asking someone to run four more miles after a marathon. Mm -hmm. Isn't kind of this supplementary drama that we're getting out of this, whether it's this, whether it's Ron Harper, all that stuff. Isn't that kind of our 11th episode?
0: Well, in a lot of ways, yeah. Uh, just the the extra, what we're seeing here, where it's an extension of the documentary, the right. perfect story. Harper mad at uh, Lenny Wilkins. There's a lot of of uh, meat on the bone
4: on this uh, documentary. Yeah, we are even, living out the 11th episode.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But that is pure hatred but that's competition though yeah so look it's this generation there's still competition but it's a different level work especially on the nba level a lot of people are working out with one another so there's a friendship there's there's a rivalry but it's still a friendship um and but this where michael still mad at isaiah thomas mahorn couldn't care less about the bulls even now he couldn't care less about the bulls and so you've been watching this documentary what what resonates with you as of late
4: well, to kind of go back to what you opened the show with, I think Scottie Pippen looks terrible out of this. And for someone like me who, I mean, we don't have, we didn't have the context of all this stuff. Like I didn't know he sat out with 1.8 left. I didn't know he was money chasing. I didn't know he was putting off surgery and all that stuff. So that's kind of the stuff that to our generation, we're looking at this like, wow, th- this is not the Scottie that we knew. Like, Jerry Krause probably was. I mean, he was kind of a backstory. Maybe you knew a little bit about Jerry Krause. So yeah, he takes the early headlines. But episodes pretty much two through what are we at eight now? Mm-hmm. It, it, I think they look really bad on Pippin.
0: Yeah, I mean that's not the guy you see on the jump.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean
0: that guy's. I You know, he's he's a millionaire and he's settled in. And he's he's good, but. There was so much contention there, so many issues there with the Bulls, Brass, and Scottie Pippen. All right, coming up, we will uh, finish off our NFC North review of the schedule and what we can expect from the Detroit Lions. Michael Rossing will be with us coming up next as we talk about the Bears and the NFC North and more right here on UTH.